Good morning. Oh my goodness. So just that, let not your heart be troubled to remember where your help comes from. I mean, did that, that totally ministered to me this morning. <laughs> Ooh, I'm still like trying to get it together after that. That was just awesome. All right. So last week we talked about, uh, we're talking about the uh, armor of God. That's what we're talking about. And last week we got started on that, talking about the belt of truth and the uh, breastplate of righteousness and um, what those things do for us. So the truth and that being our worldview and being the thing through which we um, look at everything else and um, the breastplate of righteousness being um, the imputed righteousness of Christ to us that protects us from accusation and the condemnation um, of the enemy. So uh, we're going to move on into, let's see, we're on verse 15 today, starting there. So we're going to start to talk about the shoes. It says, and with you, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So, to be quite truthful, the shoes have always been like the most confusing part of the armor of God to me because of the way it's worded. It's like it would be so much easier if it just says your feet fitted with the gospel of peace. I would understand that. But no, it doesn't say that. It says the readiness of the gospel of peace. So obedience to the gospel is implied here, but also there's a significant emphasis on the readiness to preach as opportunities present themselves to us just in everyday life in whatever sphere we're in. And also I found the shoes really interesting because of course God wants to see us prosper and win in our spiritual battles so much so that he paid a really high price for us to be able to do that so that we could have this armor. But the shoes are the piece that remind us that it's not all about us. It's not just about us. This battle isn't just about us. The shoes aren't necessarily an offensive weapon, but they're different than the other things because they're the means by which the kingdom moves forward. Your shoes and your feet are the means by which you move forward, and these shoes are the means by which the kingdom moves forward. You see, soldiers don't just go to war because you know they want to fight and die. Most of the time they don't. They go to war because they have a king. And their king has a kingdom. And they fight in the name of their king. And so when we think about our king, what is he fighting for? Well, our king, he doesn't want to see anyone perish. He wants to see everyone come to repentance. And it's his pleasure to see that. It's his pleasure for us to preach the gospel and to take the good news to those that need it, to those that are perishing. And that's, that's what we fight for. That's what the shoes tell us that we're doing because it's the gospel by which the kingdom advances and grows and expands forcefully. So it's not just about us. It's about the people that need to hear the gospel as well. And the armor of God prepares us to present that to them. So a personal application for these shoes, the readiness of the gospel of peace. In Exodus 12, 11, um, the Israelites are told to eat the Passover meal with sandals on their feet to signify the readiness for their journey to the promised land. And it signifies that they were ready to move when God was going to move. And it's 
kind of the same for all of us because we're on a journey. I'm sure that you've heard that we're sojourners. We're exiles in a foreign land and we're seeking our own country, a better country, our heavenly, eternal home. And by receiving the salvation offered through the gospel and walking in obedience to it, our souls are prepared for heaven. We're prepared by the gospel of peace to walk into our better country. So that's the personal application of the shoes. And we can take heart in that as we fight our spiritual battles. So moving on to verse 16. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Some translations say um, with which you can quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So we're talking about faith here. First John 5, 4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith that God is going to do everything he said, that he's going to bring it, bring it to completion, that he's going to finish what he started in us and in the world, overcomes the world. That's the faith that overcomes. So that faith not only stops the penetrating force of the enemy's assaults, it says that it neutralizes their heat. That's what that word quench there means. It means it stops the fire. See, these flaming arrows, they posed an added danger of starting fires that could spread to areas untouched by the arrow itself. So the fire that's on the tip of the arrow is just as dangerous as the arrow itself. And just to make an application for this when it comes to faith, for myself, there was one particular time where I was just in a battle for myself about um, just the kind of thing where the enemy's coming against you and saying, you failed, and now you have to fix it on your own, and God's not going to help you, and you have to figure it out now. And it was a scary situation. And I was on a walk one day, and I was praying about it, just talking to the Lord, really just walking with Him. And into my mind, I remembered this little piece of Scripture. It was just a small part, but into my mind pops these words. um, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed. And that's all I could remember. And But it was so significant to me. It spoke to me. I went and looked it up and got the whole verse. So it says... I hope I get it right. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And when I read that, that just so ministered to me. It totally put out that fire that the enemy was shooting at me. And it didn't say to me, don't worry, I'm going to fix all your circumstances and make everything better and it's just going to be perfect. And Because that's not what I need. And that's not what any of us need. We need the Lord. We need Him. We need His presence. We don't need everything to be perfect. We need Him. He's what brings life to everything we do and He's what brings us through every trial. And so that's, that's truly what we, and that's what I needed. And every time, I tell you, I did not struggle again in that situation because I just kept going back to that verse. I have half a notebook of that verse just written over and over and over again, and it still ministers to me. And so that's what faith as a shield is like for us. And to think about if you don't have it, to think about if you don't use 
you don't have faith as a shield. So say that dart lands and a fire starts. So when we think about fire, you think about the heat, right? And just the fire itself consuming things. But there's a characteristic of fire that I think applies here. And fire brings confusion. It's very disorienting. Have you ever heard a story of someone who's caught in a fire? It brings confusion and panic. And a lot of times when we react, when people react in that panic when they're in a fire, it causes them to put themselves in even more danger. It's so disorienting. You can't tell where the fire is necessarily, where it started. All you can see are the effects of the fire. And all you can do is react to the effects. And it's just the same way with what the enemy seeks to do in our lives when he shoots these fiery darts at us. And if we believe him and that dart penetrates and the fire starts, it just creates chaos. And then pretty soon we don't even know where it's coming from. All we know is that everything's a wreck. And faith, our shield of faith, it stops that ripple effect. It keeps that from happening. And I just want to show you, too, I want to talk about uh, an example of what faith looks like. And I just, this so touched me when I read it and was thinking about it, about the faith of Jesus, because Jesus is our example. And um, in John sixteen thirty two, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's talking about his crucifixion that's, that's coming. And he says, A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you'll be scattered, each to your own home. You'll leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. There's a lot of suffering in this world, and I'm sure a lot of you have undergone suffering. And when it comes to the suffering of the world, there's a lot of stuff I just haven't gone through, but I can tell you this one thing. Jesus suffered more than anybody else. He has the corner on being betrayed, suffering alone, being persecuted, and being feeling abandoned. No one has ever experienced that or ever will like Jesus did. He went through that and he was still the shining beacon example of what it means to believe God, to have faith to trust that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. That is incredible to me. We can rely on that example no matter what we come up against. Because in all of it, he he was perfect. He was the perfect example of faith. We are never truly forsaken or alone. And battles of faith are difficult. I mean, if you think about the shield of faith, you think about a soldier's shield, how many people can fit behind that shield? It's one. (laughs) And when you're behind that shield and things are being fired at you, it can be lonely. It can be difficult. But you're never truly alone. There's always room for God back there too. So keep that in mind when you're in these battles, when you face these things. So verse 17 starts. Go back to it. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So I think it's interesting You have to talk about the shield and the sword together. So we're going to talk about the sword before we talk about the helmet. I think it's really cool that the sword and the shield are the two tools that you can wield. 
So they're the two tools that are in your hands. So you can use them directionally, whereas the breastplate and the shoes and the belt are just attached to your body, so they kind of naturally go where you turn. The shield and the sword, you can point at things. You can use them, to use a military word, in a tactical fashion. They can apply to specific information or specific things, and they work together. So the shield is what we use to withstand the enemy, and the sword is what we use to drive him back. And we can only apply the word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, through faith. Without the word of God, we will not understand any of the other pieces of our armor. We won't know absolute truth. We won't understand the righteousness we possess through Jesus. We won't know the peace of the gospel. We won't know the full assurance of our faith. And we won't know the hope of our salvation. And I'm not saying that all of this stuff is just totally dependent on our brain's ability to comprehend the word and all of that. But I know that you all know that you're one with God. So good luck separating where you end and he begins. Like, oh, I'm only going to do this much studying in the word and knowing the word. The rest is your responsibility. You know, we do what we can and we're accountable to God. Everyone should be. So it's important, it's integral that we read the Word. It's just a simple thing. It, it's simple. Um, it's so important that we read it. And as I was thinking about this, I think that we approach the Word through faith in a couple different ways. And this first one had never really occurred to me. We approach the Word in faith when we read it, not feeling it. Um, when we have the faith to read it even when it's dry. When we have the faith to trust that it is never time wasted to spend time in the Word of God. It is never wasted. And the basic of that is our brains learn by repetition. That's just science. The more you read something, the more your brain is going to recall it. And... um the more it goes in, the more it comes out. And it's just like that one day when I was walking. And then again, not all 100% depended on me. I believe that the Lord brought that to me. But it's not a waste of time to read the Word. And I just remembered one little clip of it. It wasn't some big, grand vision where the clouds parted and I heard the voice of the Lord. It was just like, oh, I have a memory of a Word. And I went and looked it up. And it ministered to me and got me through a difficult battle. So having a basic working knowledge of Scripture, it helps us to recall it when we have those times of need. The Lord will bring it back to us. So we need to have the faith to just trust that time in the Word is never time wasted. And then when you get that revelation of the truth that you need to apply, you apply it by faith. This is the second way you approach the word by faith. When the Lord brings you a revelation and you look into it and you know he's speaking a a specific scripture to you for a specific situation, you apply it by faith. And that's where you make your stand, right on that word. Every time you get attacked on something that applies to that, every time that fiery dart's fired at you, you you stand right on that word and you say, no, this is the truth. That's the second way that we apply the word through faith. I like this quote um, from Matthew Henry. He said, A single text, well understood and rightly applied, 
at once destroys a temptation or an objection and subdues the most formidable adversary. It's true. The word is our sword, and we have to use it like a weapon and apply it through faith. And it doesn't just apply to the outward battle. Kind of that's the context that we've been talking about here, but it also applies to the battle within, the battle within ourselves that we have to become more like Jesus, the battle against our own flesh. Um, James chapter 1, verse 23 says, whoever looks intently into the perfect, perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they'll be blessed in what they do. So, you know, if you have something on your face, you don't know that you have it on your face until you look in the mirror, and then you can look in the mirror and you can take it off. And uh, again, I'm not saying that means like you have to analyze yourself and figure out a way to be perfect, but um, the Lord's going to give you grace to become more like him. And he uses his word to point out things, to bring conviction. He does it all the time. He uses his word to bring people to repentance. It's just what he does. So it applies to the battle that we have within ourselves every day to grow, to mature, to become more like him. So now we can go into talking about the helmet of salvation. So in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, that scripture there says, it tells us to put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. So slightly different wording, and it means the same thing. So salvation acts as a helmet for our head when we put our hope in it. It's that hope. Um, that trust and the guarantee that we have inside of us, the deposit of the Holy Spirit living inside of us that tells us that there's something beyond what we're experiencing right now. And it's by the helmet of salvation that we are able to take our thoughts captive according to that guarantee and fix our thoughts according to what's true and what's right, which is so important in how we walk things out. You know, your thoughts form your attitudes, your attitudes form your actions. How's that whole thing go? But it's like a domino effect. You got to get your thoughts right. In any circumstances we encounter, we can look to eternity and not be defeated by the temporal. So Colossians 3, verses 1 through 2 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. I thought this was interesting because it tells us to set our heart on something, and it tells us to set our mind on something. What's it mean to set your heart on the things above? It means that you set your affection on the things above. You realize that the things of the earth the things that people pursue, the things that people think are going to make them happy, don't. You take your affection and you put it where it actually belongs. You stop believing that this thing over here is going to fulfill me. You trust the Lord for your satisfaction and for your fulfillment. And where this verse says, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. 
It's not hidden from you. It's not like God is saying, oh, you know, all the things of this world, even the good ones, you can't have any of that, you know, because I'm better. And and that's not what it is. It's not hidden from you. It's hidden for you. It's not about what you can't have. It's about what you do have. And that is actually what is better for you. That is what you need. And you, you already possess it. If you are a believer, that is what he's trying to get across to you. He's not taking something away. He's already given you something better. All you have to do is come into the reality of that and take hold of that and live in it. We set our affections on the things above because it's where our treasure is. So it's where our hearts should be as well. So we have that hope the hope of salvation, and the word tells us that it's like an anchor that holds us firm and secure. And any time we're in chaos, in chaotic waters, we can just follow that line right back to our anchor and right back to our guarantee. And we don't have to be tossed about by the chaos that's around us. So, verse 18 says... And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With all this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So when I read this, I think about having an attitude of of availability when it comes to prayer. Just constantly having an attitude in yourself where you're quick to turn to praying. You're praying in all different occasions, all types of prayers. So you have that prayer time that's maybe solemn and alone, and you're in the secret place. And then you have prayers where you pray on a microphone corporately in front of people. You have prayers where you pray for maybe somebody on the street that the Lord prompts you to pray for. You have short, little, desperate prayers, and you have longer Um, more personal prayers. There's just all different kinds. The important thing is that we just have that attitude of availability where we're quick to turn to the Lord in prayer. We don't have to compartmentalize God. It's, uh, he doesn't just belong in this one little area where, you know, we go there with our list and then we pray and then we're done. (laughs) Um, we can talk to him anytime, anywhere. We take him everywhere with us. He's always, he's always there. So we should pray in good times. We should pray in bad times. We know that a lot of times we get desperate and we pray when times are difficult. But there's always something to pray for, even when times are good. You know, like it says, lift up your brothers and sisters. There's always something that we can pray for. There's always a need out there. And we have to be persistent, like the persistent widow. The judge had no compassion for the widow or any other motivation to respond to her besides her persistence. And the word says, how much more will God answer his people out of the compassion and love that he has for us? Um, so persistence is important, too. It's not like you're bugging God. So uh, we just finished um, this uh, book on Wednesday nights that was just really good. And the ending of it just really 
touched me and just really ministered to me. It was, it was quite awesome. So I just want to share a little bit with you um, from the book, just as an encouragement to kind of wrap this up as um, we talk about battling and being soldiers and war and things like that. I just find this to be really encouraging to send, to send off to. Um, so this right here is happening. Israel is preparing to go into the promised land. And uh, there's this prophet that another king has try and come and curse them. But it doesn't work. And if you're not familiar with the story, it's really funny. It's Balaam, and he goes to all these different places and tries to curse Israel. But all he can do is bless them because God is with them. And this is taking place after they've been wandering in the desert, being tested in the wilderness on this journey that was supposed to take like two weeks and they've been out there 40 years and other nations and places can see this happening and it must have looked absolutely ridiculous. Like how is that even physically possible? Not that I'm doubting it happened. It did, but it's just amazing to me. It had to be absolutely ludicrous. It had to look very foolish. So they've done all of that. After all that failure, they're preparing to enter the promised land. And this is what Balaam says about them when he's uh, employed to curse them, but he said, instead he blesses them. It says, no misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt They have the strength of a wild ox. There's no divination against Jacob, no evil omens against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done. That's just incredible to me. And I'm sure you're familiar with this literary structure in the Bible. It's called a lesser to greater argument. Paul does it, and Jesus does it in his parables. He does it in their persistent widow. He provides you with an example of something, and then the phrase, the phrase, how much more than will God do this, is often used. And it's just used to prove a point. And as I read this, as we read this on Wednesday nights, and um, thought about it, I just thought, if the shout of the king was among Israel as they prepared to enter the promised land, the shout of the king is surely in his church today. Like, it's with us. It's with us. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, what a thing to think on. That as the kingdom moves forward, you and I are part of that. We're a part of this advancing kingdom of God. Whether we realize it or not, we're a part of this advancing kingdom of God that's wearing this armor and and doing these things in the kingdom. And the shout of the king is with us. And it's it's just incredible to me. It's It's so motivating. It's so motivating to know that God is with us and that we give up our weakness and then have his strength. So going back to that lesser to greater argument, I just want to read this to you because every time I read it, it just really speaks to me about the kingdom that we're a part of and the king that we serve and what we get to do. It's Hebrews twelve eighteen through 24. It says, you've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, 
to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In a sermon a while back, I remember talking about that blood, that verse there, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you remember? I told you the blood of Abel cries out for justice. It cries out for vengeance. It cried out from the ground to God because Abel had been murdered. And the blood of Jesus cries out for forgiveness and for mercy to God on our behalf. I mean, that's what we've come to. We've come, that's the kingdom we've come to. That's the king we serve. That's the king that we march forward in his name and take his message, the great commission. We take his message to those that haven't heard it and the kingdom advances. That's the king we serve. All right, just to close up, I'm going to read you this little section about scripture from The Divine Antidote by Francis Frangipane, which is the book we just finished on Wednesday. And this last section here had a part called Scripture Can't Be Broken. And I just thought he was so emphatic in the way he talks about the truth of the word and what God does with it. He says, Every promise God has made concerning his glory in the church, his wrath upon the nations, his purpose with Israel and the harvest, all of it must have a fulfillment with people who hear, believe, and obtain the promise of God. Thus, if the Lord said his church will have no spot or wrinkle or any blemish or any such thing, Christ himself guarantees that. Although the word is promised to imperfect people, it will be fulfilled. If the Lord says greater works than mine shall you do, then that word will certainly come to pass no matter how weak the people are when they first believe God. With God, all things are possible. It's never a matter of if the word will be fulfilled, but when and with whom. Because scripture cannot be broken. So it's not a matter of if, but when and with whom. And our job is to trust him. Because he will do it. So we put our faith in and we say, Use me. I know that you will fulfill your word. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good, and we do believe you. We do believe you. Lord, we put our faith in you. And we believe that you are going to bring every word to pass that you have spoken, that none of it is going to fall away, that you will fulfill all of it. And Lord, we just ask that you use us. Lord, we just present ourselves to you. We offer ourselves up to you, Lord, to use for your good pleasure in telling others about your kingdom and in fighting spiritual battles, Lord. We just thank you that you have made a way um, for us to win. 
for us to win the battles that we face here on earth and for us to win the ultimate battle over death. You've made a way for us to overcome, and it is marvelous. Help us to marvel at it every day and uh, to never take it for granted, but just to stand in devotion and appreciation of all that you have done and all that you are going to continue to do, Lord. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.